You are now listening to the Hunter's Advantage Podcast. We preserve the history and sport of hunting through curious conversation and action-packed hunts, as well as offering you tips and strategy for more successful hunts. guys, welcome to the Successful Seasons series for the Hunter's Advantage podcast, where the whole goal of this series is to break down the tactics and reasons that folks are consistently successful on harvesting big whitetails, whether on public land or on private. We're going to dig into some of the highlights of these folks' successful seasons, and then talk about some of the mistakes they made and how they would correct them. If you want to learn from some absolute whitetail killers from across the country, this is the series for you. Let's get into Successful Seasons. All right, so today on the podcast, we have a very, very special guest. We usually only have one very special guest, which is Jake, but this week we have a another Jay. Um, I teased it on the last podcast. Uh, we have John Eberhart coming in today. Um, for the folks that don't know John, he's known as the godfather of saddle hunting. Um, 54 years of hunting experience, um, a big buck killer, and he's killed 20 deer on out-of-state trips. I think he has 34 bucks in the Michigan record book. This guy is just... He's an absolute killer, and I think uh, widely respected across uh, the deer hunting space. Jake, you pretty excited for this episode? Yeah, I'm pretty pumped for this. Uh, really, kind of, hopefully, touch the basics of you know the postseason scouting, possibly the midsummer scouting. Uh, I already know from other podcasts that he's really not a fan of that midsummer. He really likes uh, to stick with the postseason, and then uh, what he's most famous for is hunting pressured bucks, which I think all of our viewers. I mean, I don't think. If you listen to this, you have a 3,000 acre piece that is well managed and has quality deer management written all over it. But uh, if you do, congrats. Send, Send us, us a DM. message. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm, I'm super uh, stoked for this one. All right. So with that, let's get into the conversation with John Eberhart. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Hunter's Advantage podcast. This is episode number 140. And today we are joined by a special guest. John Eberhart, we really appreciate you jumping on, John. How's it going? Thank you. I would imagine all your guests are special. <laughs> <laughs> How'd you know? Yeah, it's fun going uh, pretty good. Going real well. That's great. For folks that don't know you, for those folks that maybe that are you know living under a rock and don't consume any deer hunting content, um, mm-hmm. kind of, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Where you cut your teeth on hunting? What kind of properties? All that sort of stuff. Uh, well, I have 100% always exclusively hunted either public or free knock on doors for permission properties. Um, nobody in my family hunted, so I'm self-taught, um, been hunting since uh, the mid 1960s. So about 54 years, I think. Bow hunting primarily is what I do. I have 54 bucks in the record books, uh, two with a muzzleloader. The rest are all with bow. Uh, 49 of those were taken out of a saddle. Uh, I started saddle hunting in 1981, and I think I've hunted 18 different parcels of public lands in Michigan. Uh, I've got 34 bucks in the book in Michigan, and then I've got 20 from out of 20 Pope and Young bucks from out of state, and. I, 
I hate to sound egotistical, but I don't think there's <laughs> anybody else out there that's hunted exclusively public and free permission properties that has that number of book bucks. I don't oh, know. Right. Maybe there is. I don't know. But I've never heard of anybody. So I'm, I'm pretty, pretty proud of that statistic. Oh, absolutely. Has that changed much through the years, uh, mainly like talking about the door knocking? Because it seems like everybody and their dog somewhat hunts now. And so I'd, I would think that, especially if you go out of state, you know, you're an out of stater, you're not really well known. Uh, I feel like, especially now, the uh, no's are a little bit more harder no's, if that makes sense. It does. And there's a couple of reasons. Obviously, more people are leasing up farmers' properties, which is keeping, you know, blue collar guys out. Um, liability issues are a big deal. You know, farmers oh, are always yeah. concerned about getting sued anymore. Uh, I've been sued before, so oh I, really? I know I know what that <laughs> um, goodness. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's become very, very uh, much more difficult. You know, back in the '60s and '70s, uh, uh, as a bow hunter, I'd knock on somebody's door and you know say, "Hey, you mind if I bow hunt?" And they'd say, "You want a bow hunt?" <laughs> you yeah. know, especially <laughs> in the '60s. And they would say, yeah, knock yourself out. They wouldn't let you gun hunt, but they'd let you bow hunt because, you know, we had like a million gun hunters back in those days. So everybody gun hunted, but there was very, very few bow hunters. Uh, I would say over the last 20 years since this whole land management and everybody wants to kill big bucks, so they buy property and keep everybody off and grow big bucks. Uh, ever since that started to come to fruition, it's been very difficult to get free hunting permission. I, I, I have two private parcels I hunt now, and I've hunted one since 2007, and another one, and it's like 40 acres of huntable land, and then the other one I've hunted probably since 2012, someplace in there, and uh, I haven't received any other free permission, even though I've, I've tried. So yeah. it's become very, very difficult, even out of state. You know, when I first started going to Kansas in 2004, and when I took my first trip to Iowa in 1997, you know, I just ordered plat books. The plat books had phone numbers of the property owners, you know, for every every county and township. And basically, just cold call, and I'd always go out there with, uh, you know, free permission before I even left the door. I'd always really? back up, walk on in public lands to hunt. But yeah, it was not that difficult to get permission, and that's 100 percent change now that's yeah nuts. imagine yeah in fact it's so it's so different now i can remember i was doing uh seminars at the wisconsin deer and turkey expo which is in madison and it was uh, maybe five years ago i don't remember the exact year and i had a guy come to my booth because i had a booth there selling books and stuff because i've written books and produced dvds instructional stuff and i had a guy from iowa stop by my booth and i'm in wisconsin and he actually lived in zone five of Iowa, which is one of the key zones. It's in the south center of Iowa, southern border. And uh, he said, yeah, you, and he was in his he was in his late 60s. And he said, man, I used to be able to hunt any place around me. You know, he was a bow hunter, strictly a bow hunter. And he said, now everybody, all of my neighbors have leased up everything or sold it, you know, to rich hunters from the east. And he said, I, I don't have any place to hunt anymore. So I come here to Wisconsin and hunt public land because there's a lot more right. in Wisconsin than there is in Iowa. 
That's a shame. I remember <laughs> my uncle's like 16 years older than me. And I remember in the, he was just telling me in the nineties, it was like, wasn't even really asking permission. Like we grew up in Northeast Oklahoma. It was more of informing people what you were going to be doing. Like on their place. <laughs> we're going to be on your property. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's just, it's so counter of what we've seen just in, in recent years. You know, I mean, it's a, it's a, such a big cash grab now. I mean, there's so much money in it. Everybody wants to shoot big deer with video and content. And like you said, land management, it's just a completely different game now. It's uh, it's definitely changed things. I don't like where hunting is going, but it is what it is. So I deal with it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so we've been doing this series on the podcast called successful seasons. And so really the whole goal of the series is like to break down tactics and reasons that folks are consistently successful in harvesting like big white tails and especially with an emphasis like on across the country and like different environments. And so we thought you would be a great guest for that. Um, this series in particular, but kind of just starting at a high level, how was this past deer season for you? Where were you hunting? What were the goals and how did it end up going? Well, for the last probably six or seven years, me and my two boys always have planned, you know, the years we get drawn, a hunt to Kansas. Uh, and we usually go out there during Michigan's gun season. So I always, I always suffer with all the other bow hunters in Michigan because Michigan is the most, <laughs> most heavily bow, hunted, bow hunting pressured state in the country by about 60,000 over the next closest state. So I suffer here because that's what I write about. That's what I talk about is hunting heavily hunted deer. So that's what I suffer with, with everybody here until gun season, you know, hunting public lands and, and those two private parcels. And uh, this year I took one nice buck in Michigan and I rattled him in out of a cornfield on October 15th. And it was kind of interesting because I had, think I had 16, maybe 18 cameras out and I use uh, cell cameras. I was definitely not a motion camera fan prior to cell cams because they involved intrusions to pull your cards, which are negative to that particular location. But uh, now Exodus, I'm using a lot of Exodus cameras. I love them. They work great. Um, and I had 18 cameras out in Michigan and I only had one buck that I would want to shoot one buck that was borderline making buck. So on October 3rd, I, I do a lot of rattling. You know, I look at, you know, there was a lot of standing corn in my areas this year, even on some public lands that butted up to, you know, private. Just seemed like everything I had was standing corn, button up to, or on the prop, property. Doesn't sound like a bad thing. <laughs> I love standing corn. Most people hate standing corn. I embrace standing corn. Yeah. Because when you can hunt along edges of standing corn and you know how to do it, they're free hunts. You know, most of your most of your rut phase locations, which is what most people key their, you know, vacation time on is during the rut phases, because that's when 55 to 65% of book bucks are taken. You know, your rut phase stands are back in the timber. They're back in the swamps. They're back in the bedding areas. They're back where there may be a stand of oaks on a ridge or something. So they're back in the timber. So if you've got property and it's budding up to standing corn, timber budding up to standing corn, as long as you've got excellent security cover on off the standing corn side, so you get standing corn budding up to timber where there's excellent security cover around the area you want to hunt, it's not that difficult to rattle bucks out of corn. Because there's a good percentage of the 
especially the bigger bucks that are bedding in those standing cornfields. So on October 3rd, I rattled in that buck, the biggest one I had on camera, which was the third day of season on an evening. Hunt. I rattled him in and he came into five yards and I drew on him twice, standing there broadside at five yards. And then I let my ball up because he's, he's just a borderline buck. You know, he's a good one, but he's still borderline. What do you mean borderline? Like what's your borderline? Pope and Young? 125. Okay. So I, I let the bow up and then, you know, within 30, 40 seconds, he walked back into the standing corn. And after he did, I said, John, you're an ass. You just <laughs> let the biggest buck you have on camera and of all your cameras walk, walk, you know, I let him walk. So I thought about that on my way home. And then after that, because I hadn't seen anything bigger, you know, in previous days, days after that, he became my target buck. So the buck I passed up at five oh, yards, yeah. my target buck. And then on October 15th, I ended up rattling him out of the same cornfield, but in a different location. The odds of rattling in a heavily hunted area, the odds of rattling a big buck out of a corn to a specific corn edge location, it's pretty rare that you could do that twice. He's not going to be fooled twice. So I rattled him in from a different tree probably a couple hundred yards from the tree I rattled him in on October 3rd. But when you can do rattle sequences or you can hunt transition routes into standing corn or coming out of standing corn in the morning, you know, they have the security cover for that, for daytime movements by a mature buck, I consider those free hunts because you're not interfering or intruding into the timber whatsoever. So you're not interfering with your rut phase location. Mm, so, okay. You know, if, if I go out in a nice scout and let's say I'm scouting three or four pieces of public land during postseason, which as soon as the snow melts, and let's say I find a couple bedding areas and I don't plan on hunting them during the rut, I have other locations during the rut phases that I think are better. You know, during season, that's another slide. I will go into those public land bedding areas like during that October lull. And I'll do rattle sequences and try and rattle something in because I'm not going to hunt that during the rut phase. So I view all of that stuff as just free hunts. They're not hurting anything whatsoever. So they're just freebies. And I rattled in 16 bucks between October 1 and October 15th in Michigan. That's so only, only one of them was a shooter and I rattled him in twice and I shot him in the, on the 15th, but I rattled in, you know, 14 other bucks at different times. Now, Three different times they came in in bachelor groups. So once on public land, I rattled in four bucks out of a in a swamp. But four bucks came in together, and they were all subordinate. There was one two and a half year old eight point, maybe eighty inches. Um, and two other times along standing corn, I rattled in three one time and four another, and they were all a year and a half old. So you know, just saying rattling in deer bucks, you know, they're not all shooters. <laughs> so, right. Yeah, but still, That's, it's fun. And I rattled in another ten bucks after the fifteenth between Michigan and and uh, Kansas because Michigan's a two buck state, so I kept on it. That's it's it's crazy to me that you're doing that on rattling in on public land, just because like, our, from our experience in Oklahoma, it's like people play the the grunt flute and they play the uh, the the rattle drums like they walk around like they're a marching band, like <laughs> and you hear you hear people on the ground. It doesn't matter where they are, they're doing it. Do you? 
what do you attribute those pressured bucks to like uh, responding to that rattling to? Is it because you have so much cover in those um, standing cornfields that they have to come check it out if they want to have any idea and they can't see or what, what do you attribute that to? Yeah, I think because there's security cover in the corn where they're coming from almost all. When I rattled along the corn, I don't think there was any buck that I rattled in that came from the timber side. They were always out of the corn. So you got security cover to security cover. So they feel comfortable coming into that maybe five yard buffer between the corn and the edge of the timber to check out what's there. Same thing in a bedding area. You know, most people, when I do my scouting here on public land, I see tree stands all over the place in open timber, you know, places where I wouldn't even consider hunting. So people that are doing grunt calls and rattling sequence, all they're doing is educating deer not to go into those types of areas in the daytime. That's all they're doing. So when you get back into areas where you got heavy security cover, like the corn budding up to security cover timber on the one side, or back in a bedding area in a, in a swamp, uh, tamarack swamp or whatever that may be on public land, you know, those deer feel comfortable getting up and moving during daylight hours in that heavy security cover. Obviously, if you're doing it out in open timber or along edges where you've got maybe a swamp butting up to open timber, a, a mature buck in a heavily pressured area is not going to come out to the edge and be exposed in that open area. He's just not going to do it. You know, in Kansas, Iowa, you know, Missouri, states like that, yeah, they'll walk across a two-inch tall winter wheat field to come to <laughs> But in a heavily pressured area, it's not going to happen. Everything has to be security cover oriented. Yeah. Right. So speaking of the uh, heavily pressured area, I know you've hunted like Missouri, Ohio, Kansas, uh, Iowa, Illinois, and then Michigan. And I heard on a earlier podcast that you said Michigan was the most pressured. Does that still hold true to this day? Oh, yeah. Does yeah it? Michigan. Well, when I say it's most pressured, we we have more both licensed bow hunters than any other state. And, okay. our, and our state's also a two buck state. So. You know, people can kill one and then continue hunting like Ohio. Most right. of your big buck states are one buck states. Ohio is a one buck state. Indiana is a one buck state. I yeah. Uh, one buck state. That's the way Oklahoma is. Oklahoma is a two buck state, but it's almost like we get kind of hit with the double whammy at times because there's a muzzleloader season and then a rifle season. The way it works in Oklahoma is you can take one, like like you can fill both your buck tags using a muzzleloader and then a, a, a rifle. And to make it even worse is the rifle season is like, when I say the peak rut, it's the peak rut here. And like, that's where, ours that's when stuff really hits the fan. Yeah, ours is during, our gun season is, opens right dead center of peak rut. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's always kind of funny because it's just like, man, I wonder what happened to that buck. You know, he's he, he's not on camera, which, again, gunshots are going off and stuff. So you you expect them to be a little bit more, you know, tucked back into the timber and stuff. And then you start scrolling through Facebook and it's like, oh, neighbors got him. There so. he is. <laughs> <laughs> it's gonna, always fun. I was going to say, I used to gun hunt up until 1991 here. And, and if you didn't kill a buck opening day, you're on. Good killer. luck. Like, yeah. Buck after opening day was pretty close to zero because any mature buck they are just buried in a swamp someplace and right. they'll move till daylight usually till sometime in january <laughs> you know no. after the season 
I'm with you on that. I'm with yeah, you. There's a there was a guy that I was talking to. He said that in Northeast Texas they shoot it at sound. It ain't even sight. Like they just hear something <laughs> and they just boom, just shoot you that direction. Have to make sure you didn't go on its property. <laughs> yeah, Probably. yeah. It seems like once a year somebody in Northeast Texas gets killed deer hunting. It's like, dude, how? people just shoot at sound. It's like, man, they don't even want to get a mature buck. They just want to get a buck. I think it's legal to shoot trespassers in <laughs> Texas. <laughs> yeah. Texas is its own country. Okay. Yeah, Texas funny. is definitely its own country. And deer hunters about there, you just don't trust that. Oh, that's funny. That's so not heard of. You you said you've been hunting fifty four years. Was there and I'm sure there's some little nugget even in fifty four years in that you're picking up every single season. What was something that you maybe learned or a detail that you honed in on a little more this season um that you maybe hadn't spent a lot of time in or hadn't learned the previous seasons? Jeez, that's a good question. Something I picked up this season. Maybe had a flushed well, ear out of corn. Maybe that's one. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I did learn something. I learned something in Kansas because I've been going to Kansas since 2004. I've probably been there six, 15 times maybe because there was years I didn't get drawn. And um, I learned that during arid seasons, that buck antlers don't grow the same as normal. So this year, we had, me and my two boys, we had a lot of cameras. And typically, by the 22nd to 23rd of November, we always go out there during the end of their peak rut leading into their post ruts. We always go out there in late November. And typically, by the end of, by November 22nd, 23rd, it's almost to the day. The majority of does have been bred. So now those bigger bucks, the, those dominant bucks that have been doed up pretty much since we got there, now they have to actually get up off their butts and go search for late estrus does just like they had to search for early estrus does during the pre-ride. And on our cameras that we had out this year, 90%. 80 something, it was real close to 90% of the mature bucks, of all the bucks actually that we got on camera, had broken antlers by the 22nd or 23rd of November. Typically, it's about 50%. Someplace between 45 and 55% have busted off antlers by the 22nd or 23rd coming out of peak rut because there's so much fighting that goes on because there's so many bucks out there compared to mm-hmm. the does. You know, their buck to doe ratios antler buck to mature doe day ratios are pretty even. In fact, we usually see more bucks than we do does. So uh, I, I was kind of wondering why. And then I was talking to some farmers out there and they said they had 0.35 inches of rain from June 15th through mid-November. 0.35 wow. inches of rain. Yeah. So almost every farmer, I, in fact, every farmer I did talk to, they were collecting crop insurance. Because the, the crop yields, they just weren't getting, I talked to one farmer, he had, he was, he did three acres of soybeans where he actually harvested them and he was getting four bushel per acre. He had to do that just to prove to the insurance company. <laughs> okay. So, so the same minerals that go into growing bone on antlers are the same minerals that grow crops. So obviously okay. if the crops are not growing, getting their normal yields, um, you know, the deer, the bucks weren't, their antlers were more brittle. I don't think they were as dense. And I mm. think that's why so many antlers were busted up by the end of, uh, you know, 
peat rut. Because hmm. when we go out there, we leave on the 16th. We arrive late at night on the 16th because we leave at like 5 a.m. in the morning. And then we go to bed and we get up on the 17th. And we all we do the first two days, we have an 11-day trip because we want to hunt seven days. So the first two days, all we do is scout and prep location. So usually by the 19th in the morning, we have usually 10 to 12 locations prepped and ready to go. Um, and that's when we actually start hunting. Usually I'm so wore out because I prep all the trees, even though my kids are <laughs> 50 years old. I like right. prepping the trees myself because I want the steps on for my saddle to be nice and even. I don't want to take any jerky motions. I want everything smooth. And... Um, so I usually sleep in on the morning of the 19th and start my hunting on the 19th in the evening because I don't really get serious until the 22nd or 23rd because from the 19th until the 22nd, we see a lot of two and a half and an occasional three and a half year old buck. We're seeing, you know, 115 to 135 bucks, uh, but we're not seeing those 150s that we were targeting or that mm -hmm. bigger. And we don't start seeing those until we see them on camera. We get them on our cameras at night. But we don't start seeing them in the daytime until after that 22nd, 23rd time frame. Hmm. That's one of the cool things about Kansas is their gun season opens in December. They have a September like month season. Yeah, like it should <laughs> as a bow hunter. <laughs> yep. So, you know, you can go out there during post rut and continue to bow hunt prior to their gun season. So deer are still in their normal movement habits. Yeah, we spent our first uh, fall in southeast Kansas this year, and it was incredible. The early season hunting was amazing. The late season, we were still seeing Pope and Young quality bucks all the way up into the last day of season. But we hunted that first two weeks in November in Kansas, probably the worst hunting experience we've ever had with the people. Like you said, that second half of November, I think yeah. that's going to be the ticket for us going forward because I saw more more people than deer and i know kansas has a lot of deer because i saw them all pre or all early season and all post or late season too it was that's, it was tough that's another great point because when we're out there during post post run late november we don't see anybody everybody takes their trips out you know whether it be iowa kansas missouri nebraska dakotas everybody goes the last week of october through the second week of november everybody everybody that takes that oh yeah time frame for trips yeah. Uh, in, in early season, like late September, I think, uh, it was almost like you had like your own personal, like bean field yourself and you didn't have to do any of the work. You know what I mean? Oh yeah. And Absolutely. you were still seeing like 20 plus deer now. Granted, I don't know which one would be better. I don't know if, if you have a preference on hunting early or late, late well, season. I, I always prefer hunting during the rut phases in Michigan. Phases. I have never hunted out there that early. So I, I can't intelligently speak about hunting that early in Kansas because, like I said, I always suffer with all the other Michiganders <laughs> during <laughs> right. the early part of the season. So, so uh, yeah, I always, I always, anytime I've ever went out of state anywhere, it's always been either late season, you know, like mid-December after the gun season's end, like in Illinois, or, you know, during Michigan gun season. Well. It's almost like uh, the Kansas gun season, and again, I can only speak on Oklahoma gun season. It's almost like they're like two different deer, if that makes sense. Because after gun season in Oklahoma, you can't catch even on even on private land. You can rarely catch a deer out in the middle of the field. We went late season, and it was after or during gun season. I don't remember, but it was it was like December something, and 
we were seeing deer uh, eat like just basically in the middle of these bean fields that they left little strips of beans. And we're not, we're not like big ag hunters because uh, Oklahoma doesn't have like the, I guess the management style that Kansas does. But uh, yeah, those, those like little strips of standing beans that, that, that they were leaving, we were seeing some pretty good bucks just, just after or during gun season, just standing out there. And it's just like, you wouldn't see that in Oklahoma. Yeah, you wouldn't in Michigan. I mean, I can remember the first time I went to Iowa and I watched this 150 plus inch eight point walk across a two inch <laughs> wheat field, walking right towards the road. I parked on the road and no, I'm sorry, it was in Kansas in 2004, first time in Kansas. And this buck was, it was like two hours before dark and he's walking across the field right towards where my vehicle is. I'm parked on the road. He was going to cross the road. He got about 50 yards from the road and he just kind of looked at my car and Stared at me for a while with the window down, and I turned around and walked back. <laughs> like, no big deal. You know, I was like, that would never happen at all. <laughs> you no. didn't press a little harder on that gas pedal to, you know, <laughs> maybe bump into them? Or, I mean, 150 inch eight. I mean, people do some stupid things. <laughs> I actually had permission to hunt that piece of property, and I set up. Oh, I got you. And I, I had him at about 35 yards, but I didn't take that shot. Just wasn't oh, comfortable goodness. with 35. But I, I killed a good buck on that trip, so I was cool. There you Probably go. As, as, if I had to pick one thing that I think um, would be advantageous to hunters that most hunters don't believe in would be scent control. Uh, I, I struggle. This is my most major struggle in the deer hunting world. You know, a deer's major, you know, they got eyes, ears, and nose. So they got three major senses basically vision sight or sight hearing and smelling but smelling is definitely their main their main thing as far as keeping themselves alive you know their nose and you know i've been using activated carbon line clothing since 1997 and by 1999 i had researched the technology and got to a point where i pay zero attention to wind i paid zero attention to wind since 98 late late 98 or 99 and I, I struggle to comprehend why hunters don't take advantage of such a serious technology that right. totally alleviates wind direction. That just boggles my mind. <laughs> now, that's I, I might be one of those, but because like I to be able to be like completely scent free because I've, I've listened to a lot of the podcasts you've been on and stuff like that, but, but to be completely scent free and to go to those extremes, I think, I mean, I guess a, it could be laziness, but it's just, it is a lot of work. It is, it is a lot of work because I mean, I think all the time in prepping your locations and scouting and getting up in the mornings and buying clothes and figuring out what layer garments you're going to wear, you know, too much yeah. not to kill a deer. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's, it's a lot of work when you first get started at the, at the, the uh, process. Once you learn the process, it's, it's no different than regular hunting. You know, all, all the preparation for scent control is basically done at home. You know, when I, when I drive and pull up to a spot to go hunting, I slip between my seats in my van and I just put on my, you know, sunlock jacket and sunlock pants, my layers underneath that I have stripped down and put my layers on, then my sunlock jacket and pants grab my backpack and bow and walk out the door. I guarantee I'd be out of the, out of my van door ready to walk in the field before you would. 
no matter, yeah. you know, matter what you were using to hunt, hunt in as far as clothing. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of like hanging the saddle, right? Like the first, or hanging sticks and getting the saddle. It took me like 30 minutes the first time. Now it's like, I'm up pretty quick. Like yeah. probably... Yeah. probably pretty quick that nowadays it, the scent control thing though it blows it blows my mind and i can't fully wrap my mind around it because the first 15 years that i hunted we didn't we didn't care about the wind either but we didn't kill very many deer either so um i mean we just we always use yeah. scent control in form of spray right we never played the wind i didn't start playing the wind until i was 20 years old and i started dramatically increasing the amount of mature bucks that I was shooting, right? I could always kill a two and a half or a three and a half year old deer, but mature deer, I started almost every mature deer on my walls came post, um, playing the wind, but the playing the wind is extremely limiting on when you can hunt and the locations that you can hunt. And so, I mean, it, that's just, it's interesting to me that you, that you don't have to play the wind. And, and with that being said, like what is a little bit without getting too deep into the woods, weeds how how do you do that like what with carbon capture technology i think is what you said yeah how do you can you explain that just a little bit because to me it's uncomprehendable from someone who who (laughs) still plays the wind well to back up a little bit for the first 35 years i hunted i hunted the wind exclusively Mm -hmm. when you hunt the wind exclusively you know sometimes some years your best rut phase locations don't get hunted because you don't have the day off on the days the wind is right so, you know, there's just a lot of times you don't get to hunt your best locations because you have to pay attention to wind. And when you said scent free, I don't think there's a, such a term as scent free. You know, I think you just knock your human odor down to what, like one or two percent of it escapes. And that's that's not enough to make a deer think you're an immediate threat. You know, if they get any human odor in their nose, that it's. They just think it's a long distance away and they don't even think about it, you know, because they, they will in most every area in the country accept a certain amount of human odor, you know, one or two percent of what your human body can produce. So in 97, you know, I, uh, Miles Keller was always a big, you know, I was always, always a big fan of him. You guys probably never even heard about him. I've, I've heard of that. Okay. <laughs> I've heard of him. I've heard of him. Big time <laughs> before, before being a big time butt killer was cool you know and he did it the real way he he actually went out and hunted deer he didn't grow them and then just kill them like a lot of tv guys uh he actually would find them and then get permission to hunt on the properties because it was primarily in the 80s and it was easier to get permission and he'd get permission and go out and target them and kill them and uh he he actually start used scent lock and had a little bit of success with it so i I bought some and the instructions that it came with were, in my opinion, not worthy of being, of not having to worry about the wind. Um, they just didn't give you the proper instructions for properly caring for activated carbon clothing, in my opinion. And uh, so I researched the technology. I knew a lot about activated carbon before I even bought that suit. And I researched the technology. I played with different things as far as deabsorbing it. You can't reactivate it. That's impossible. So you have to deabsorb it. It's like wringing a sponge out, getting rid of most of the water, but it'll still absorb more. So I figured out finally, you know, I have have jacket, pants, gloves, head cover. You have to have the head cover with the drop-down face mask. That's a 100% must because 40% of your odor comes out of your hair follicles in your face, your beard. so I was doing that and having a lot more success 
as far as, you know, not getting winded as often. And then I was like, okay, well, why am I getting winded at all? You know, what, what else might I be doing? Obviously I was wearing rubber boots, you know, so there's no odor on that. But then I thought about my backpack, you know, I'm in my backpack every day with my bare hands, reloading it for the next hunt all throughout the season. So here I am, I've got a scentlock suit on up in a tree and I've got this huge human scentlock in the tree with me in the form of my backpack. So I ended up getting some scentlock fabric and having a backpack made. So I did absorb that the same as I would my suit every so often. And I keep everything in an airtight container. So it's because activated carbon doesn't know whether you're hunting or whatever you're doing. It's absorbing molecules 100% of the time it's exposed to an outside environment. So once you deabsorb it in a dryer and you put it in an airtight container, and then once you stop your vehicle, you put on all your base garments, undergarments, and then you slip open that tote up and put on your sunlock suit and gloves and head cover and backpack, you're pretty much scent free, 98% scent free, I would say. And that yeah. was actually proven because sunlock got sued about eight years ago, maybe, maybe even a little bit longer. And in a, in a uh, U.S. court ruling, it, I think it ended up in a Florida district court, U.S. district court. And they actually sent, sent law garments to Rutgers University where they have science labs where they actually study activated carbon for industries and stuff like that, other, other types of uses, because it's used by NASA. It's every chemical warfare suit on Earth uses activated carbon, paint respirators, just tons and tons of uses. And they actually tested some Scentlock suits and they, in the actual ruling, the dismissal ruling of this case, they put in print in the court dismissal by the judge in expert testing, Rutgers University used likely 10,000 times more molecules than the human body could produce in a 24 hour period and the scent lock still absorbed 96.5 to 99 plus percent of all human order molecules, of all the molecules. Wow. So, so using 10,000 times more than you could produce in 24 hours, it still absorbed over 96% of them. Yeah, that's that's almost uncomprehendable for my small mind. But how do, how do they test something like that? Do you know? Uh, I... I think they put activated carbon in a container and then they put fabric actually in the container with it. I actually have a, an actual document on how they did that. I got it from Rutgers because I actually talked to one of the guys that did it mm -hmm. years ago. Um, and then they just, they can test it. They have, you know, electron microscopes that can. Is it like bacteria based? You think like Is bacteria from like. Odor from, from bacteria. Is your odor from bacteria? I would think so. Just yeah, yeah, it is. There, you you have a. I ain't no science major, so I, <laughs> I don't know. You have over three hundred different types of molecules, odor molecules that are basically coming out of your body one hundred percent of the time you're breathing. Now, okay. bacteria is actually an organism, so it is putting out odor molecules as well. Now, there's a lot of antimicrobial garments out there that actually kill bacteria if they're worn against the skin. So okay. most of them are treatments. Now, some of them are silver, 
Some of them are silver lined, which is a natural antimicrobial. The U.S. military uses silver for antimicrobial for socks and underwear, for crotch itch and for feet. <laughs> <laughs> That's just a fact. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, antimicrobials, all they do is they physically kill bacteria. They do nothing to absorb odor from the dead bacteria. So they kill bacteria so it doesn't multiply as rapidly. Mm -hmm. uh, so it cuts down on that, but still you have lots of other gases and, and liquid um, in the form of sweat and perspiration molecules coming out of that. So bacteria is a big one, but uh, even wearing an antimicrobial uh, garment against your skin, while it's going to kill bacteria, does nothing to get rid of the odor from that bacteria, and it does nothing for any of the other odor molecules that you are excreting through your skin okay. or mouth or nose or ears. So I got to play devil's advocate for a minute. Like, so let's say an average person, not an average person, a way above average, a volume hunter hunts 75 days a year, harvests one or two bucks a year. Let's say if you're a, if you're a volume hunter and like, say you take your approach, right? You, you use scent lock and um, activated carbon. Don't you feel like eventually um, if you hunt enough times, the wind's going to be right to kill a, to kill a deer? Because from my perspective, when I was growing up and every time I killed one, it was it was probably the right wind. I didn't know it was the right wind. I just ended up killing one on that day. Or do you have specific like uh, anecdotal experiences where you're like, hey, I was hunting. I know on the completely wrong wind and I still killed this deer completely downwind to me. Do you have a bunch of experiences both, like that, too? Both of what you just said is true because, yeah, I kill. I don't pay attention to wind, but when I'm actually going hunting or setting up a hunting location, but especially back in the early years, once I was confident in it and I was, you know, testing it. Yeah. The first five to 10 years, you know, when there was a big buck coming in from directly downwind. Yeah. I was always like, <laughs> okay, I hope the summit keeps coming. <laughs> and I, shot. I, I, I would bet 50% of the mature bucks. I've killed since using Scentlock. And when I say Scentlock, I mean activated carbon. Scentlock owns the U.S. patent on using activated carbon, so nobody else can use it because that's why everybody else knocks it because they can't use it without paying them a huge royalty. So, but yeah, I've, had, I've shot lots of bucks that have came in from directly downwind. I've had lots of does go by me on my, to my downwind side and keep on going. I have deer cross my entry routes all the time. Uh, yeah, there's no doubt when you've hunted 35 years where you're 100% paying attention to wind direction, you immediately know the difference when you're not paying attention to wind direction and you're still killing any deer that comes in from downwind. Yeah. Any deer. Right. So, yeah, a lot of the deer I kill, you know, they came in from upwind. So, you know, but that I wasn't worried about it. It's I didn't plan it that way. I never, I the only time I ever plan a location according to wind direction is if I'm setting up at a primary scrape area because I'm a big primary scrape area hunter. I'd say over 50% of the bucks I've shot were at scrapes of some sort. And so when I'm setting up at a primary scrape area, I'll usually set up about 25 yards on the downwind side of the scrapes from whatever the prevailing wind is, which I'm up in up north. Prevailing winds up here usually out of the north to northwest. So when I'm setting up a location during, you know, postseason scouting and location prep, it's going to be on the south, the southeast side of the scrape areas. And then I'll also clear a runway another 25 to 30 yards downwind of the tree. So if a buck comes into the physical scrape area, I'll have that shot. 
But if he circles to the downwind side, which is very common during midday, during the rut phases, especially pre-ride, they usually will circle to the downwind side and scent check if anything was at those scrapes. Because scrapes are usually in a little open area. It's a small opening. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'll have a shot any place up to almost 50 yards on the downwind side of that scrape area by setting up on the downwind side of the scrapes. So I actually will try... That's the only time I physically go in and hunt the wind is I want to hunt those those locations when the wind is out of the north or northwest because deer usually come in from the downwind side. Whereas if I were set up, let's say I just went in there carte blanche because I'm not paying attention to the wind and I set up a tree on the north side of the scrapes and the wind was out of the north northeast. So if a buck came 50 yards on the downwind side, I wouldn't have that shot. So by setting up on the downwind side of the prevailing winds and waiting for the prevailing wind to hunt that location, now I've, I've upped my opportunities. I've upped my chances, odds. No, that makes a lot of sense. So, I mean, you do you pay attention to the wind, but only in the context of how the deer is going to use the wind to Absolutely. scent check and use um, his scrape areas. We want to talk uh, a lot more about that and more about pressuring or hunting pressured whitetails because I know you've written, written books about this. But um, we actually <laughs> there, there you go that was one of the questions one of our one of our listeners it was asking if you were going to write another book so that's awesome that, that's exciting we tell, uh, tell on that me and some of the saddle guys are going to write a saddle hunting book but it's going to have general deer hunting stuff in it as well oh there we go it's going to be cool. a very it's going to be the bible <laughs> <laughs> saddle bible <laughs> yeah well deer it's going to have it's it, uh there's going to be a lot more just general hunting information in it than about saddles i mean you can only put so much stuff in in a book about just saddle hunting I right just the form of a tree stand so it's just another form of hunting yeah so one of the things that we know our listeners are going to want to take away we want to give them tangible things they can take away from an episode and i know one of the things that you like to do is postseason scouting which is probably different from the south to the north i mean you talked about how you're still waiting for that to come when the snow melts we've already done a good amount of it like we just did a 10 mile day uh postseason scouting one of our first times actually spending an extended amount of time um, postseason scouting. And I feel like the veil was pulled from my eyes this last weekend. I was like, oh my gosh, I've seen more sign. It's been easier to spot than I've ever, ever been. Um, you can see these subtle changes in topography that you just cannot see when all the vegetation and the green up is there too. Um, but I just wanted to, we wanted to know what, what does your postseason scouting strategy look like now? How much of it are you doing and why are you doing it? Cause there's a lot of folks that are going to put that bow in the closet and they're all their stuff and the trail cameras and they're going to sit there till the end of summer. Well, the reason I do it is there's multiple reasons actually. Uh, post, there's a lot of advantages of postseason scouting. First off, like I mentioned earlier, 55 to 65, and I have this data. I did all this data collection back when I was writing my books. 55 to 65% of all book bucks in the Pope and Young record book were taking in every state during that state's rut phases. So when there's that high of a percentage of bucks taken during that three and a half to four week time frame, obviously that's when you want to spend the most of your attention hunting. So up in the northern tiered states and throughout the Midwest, by the rut phase periods, which is usually late October through late November, all the foliage is pretty much down. So when you go out and you do, when you scout your locations during preseason, all the foliage, everything looks dense. 
Everything mm-hmm. looks like it's got a lot of security cover. You can't see those little train feature brakes and stuff like you were just talking about. You could now. Okay. Yep. You can't see that stuff. You can see a long ways when all the foliage is down. So when you're scouting, you're looking at areas exactly like they're going to look during the rut phases when you go back. So you're not going to set up at a place during preseason for the rut phase hunting that looks dense now. And then you get back there and it's not, doesn't have the adequate security cover once the foliage is down for mature bucket activity at that specific location. So postseason, you're looking at the location exactly the way it's going to look at now. You know what kind of security cover it's going to have. Also, your trees. You know, when you're looking at prepping a location at a tree, at a, at a spot, you're looking at the trees. Well, during preseason, the trees all have foliage in them. So you may mm-hmm. end up setting 18 feet, setting up 18 feet up the tree, which is, in my opinion, it's pretty damn low unless you have tree foliage in the tree. Mm-hmm. You know, early season, it's fine because you got a lot of background cover and full cover around you. But during the rut phases, once the foliage is down, you stick out like a sore thumb at 18 feet. Uh, now, the saddle changes that because you can move around the tree and hide behind okay. it. But still, you know, I, I'm usually 22 to 28 feet to my feet during the rut phases because I want to be up out of a buck's peripheral vision. So during postseason, you're looking at the trees exactly the way they're going to look like when you go back and hunt them during the rut phases. So you prep them accordingly. Um, you can scout every inch of the property. You know, it can t- you can go out there every day from daylight till dark, seven days in a row, and you're not worried about spooking deer. Because spooking deer this time of year is 100% irrelevant to fall activity. Everything is going to be back way, way before fall and in its normal routine. So you're, you can scout every inch of the property without concern of spooking deer. Uh, you don't have to worry about scent. You know, when you go out and you pre-season scout, you're leaving lots of human odor. You know, it's usually 80 degrees in August or oh, September yeah. when you're pre-season scouting. You're, you're sweating your ass off. You're leaving a lot of human odor. You're Battling making, ticks, mosquitoes. <laughs> yeah. And you're making visual changes. Yeah. Right then and there, you are making visual changes to their habitat when you're cutting shooting lanes and stuff. Postseason, when you're doing all of that stuff, your location preparation, you, your alterations, clearing shooting lanes and all that stuff is irrelevant because they've got six months to adjust to that and make, make their movement habits, you know, be habitual, basically. Basically a free scout. Yeah, when you're setting that stuff up now and cutting shooting lanes, you know, you, they got six months to get used to everything. And, you know, going down these routes through these clearings of your shooting lanes is, you know, it's routine by that time. Whereas you go out there preseason, do that, you're leaving scent there and mature bucks pick up on that, even if it's after dark. And they'll avoid those places or a lot of times in areas where you got a lot of preseason scouting, like on public land, mm-hmm. they just turn nocturnal before right. season even opens. You know, they, They've been shot at before. Most of them up here have been wounded. I think 28 of my 34 Michigan buck, buck bucks have had wounds on them. Oh, really? So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's insane. Had four. <laughs> really? Oh, my God. Yeah. He's been yeah. Yeah. We got pictures. I took all the projectiles out of them, actually. <laughs> oh. So, um, so where, where was I? So, anyway, yeah, you're – you're not making a visual change by doing it this time of year, whereas you'd be leaving scent changing the visual preseason and probably altering deer habits, deer routines, especially mature buck routines, because they've been left alone since probably turkey season, probably since January. 
you know, you're going to have January through March where they're totally 100% left alone during the winter. And then you might have a little influx of turkey hunting activity, but then the rest of the summer, they're totally left alone. And then all of a sudden there's an influx of human activity in the form of preseason scouting on public lands and location prep. They know that gig. Yeah. Once three or four years old, they know that gig and they just turn nocturnal or they go back so deep into the bedding areas and they just don't move outside of those bedding areas during daylight hours. Um, hmm. So there's that. And then you can also, you know, a lot of times up here in Michigan, because like right now, there's we just had a huge ice storm. There's a quarter of an inch of ice on all the branches and everything south of me, about 100 miles, and branches are falling. So when you actually go out and you're doing postseason scouting, once you find a location, you can walk every runway going to it for 50 to 100 yards and, you know, pull or cut or whatever all of the debris that's blocking the runways open those runways up so they're easy to transition down and you can also block sometimes you know as i've aged i'm shooting a 40 pound bow now so my shooting range is only 25 yards um i can actually if there's a runway that's 30 35 yards away that's paralleling my tree i can actually take brush and block that runway and then slowly gradually turn and make make an opening within 25 yards of my tree so by doing that this time of year you know that alteration in that runway becomes habit if you did that preseason, it's you'd leave so much odor along that runway they'd probably quit using it especially during the early part of the season and right. they go back using it during the rut but not during the early, early part of the season yeah so, so there's a lot of oh. advantages to postseason scouting yeah. So diving a little bit more into that postseason scouting, like if if you're coming up onto a new area or something, what's the what's the first thing you really look for? Like, is it is it sign? Is it terrain? Is it food? I mean, I guess it could be all, but like, what's that? What's that one? What's the primary one that 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 you really look for? It depends on the area that I'm hunting. Like, if I'm hunting big timber areas, uh, like Southern Ohio or something like that, you know, where there's no ag for miles. Uh, I'm typically looking for mast, you know, in the form of, uh, you know, what primarily white oaks or red oaks, uh, mm -hmm. hickory, hickory trees. I'm, I'm looking for food. But if, when I'm hunting up here in Michigan, if I'm hunting in an area where there's agriculture, I'm always, my key objective is to find scrape areas. Not necessarily individual scrapes along a runway, but primary scrape areas where you're going to have multiple scrapes in a small zone. Because those are always put... 100% of the time, the primary scrape area is always where there's a lot of doe activity. Okay. That's why they're there. So I'm looking for those primary scrape areas. And I, as I said earlier, over half of the deer I've killed in the last probably 35 years were at primary scrape areas or very near them. And a lot of times those are at mass trees. You know, if you go out, I don't think you guys have apple trees down where you're at. Uh, no, not really. Okay. Not really. Um, persimmon, uh, a few, a few. Yep. But yeah. they're, they're still pretty rare. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Anytime you get to a preferred mast or fruit tree, mm -hmm. you know, like a white, a white oaks are preferred up here. Over oh, we there. have a lot of oaks. Yeah. A lot, of, got oaks, a lot yeah. of oaks. Yeah. A lot of times if you find, uh, an isolated group, let's say three or four oaks in a small little zone. Uh, you know, that's going to be a primary feeding location. That's going to attract those. So there's a good chance there'll be some scrapes there. Um, okay. Apple trees up here are really <laughs> key feeding locations because it's like eating 
candy to a yeah. they're really sweet. So you find apple trees up here in the years that, the, it, that they're dropping, if there's not a lot of apple trees in the area, you know, there's only two or three, those become destination feeding locations because there's only a few of them. So those are going to be feeding there and there's going to be primary, you know, there's going to be scrapes there. So that's, that's the key spot. And then for hunting in the rut phases, so my number one thing is primary scrape areas and scrapes in general. Um, number two would be food, you know, mass and, you know, I don't do food plots, never hunted a food plot in my life. So it's going to be preferred mass or preferred fruit. Uh, and then number three is interiors of bedding areas. During the rut phases, I'm almost always, I'd say 60, 70% of the time of my hunts are in interiors of bedding areas, not perimeters, interiors. Mm -hmm. If I wanted to kill one of you two guys, I guess <laughs> that would be to hide in your bedroom. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Every night. Okay. Yeah. Second best place would be next to the refrigerator, which is a <laughs> yeah. not in the dining room because you may not actually, you know, the dining room would be considered a perimeter of a bit of a feeding area. Right. You may go to the refrigerator and get food and go eat in a different room. So by hunting the dining room, I'd be hunting a peripheral location as opposed to the destination location of the actual food source. You kind of follow what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, yep. Yeah, yeah. Or a transition sense. route. You know, you look at a, a transition route to or from a feeding area, from a bedding area. You know, I, I look at that like your driveway. If I wanted to kill one of you two guys and you had three doors in your house, you know, I'm probably going to stake out along your driveway because you have to go into the driveway to park your car. Whereas, let's say I... I hung out at your front door in the weeds by your front door. You may pull in the garage and go in a different door. <laughs> you know, you, you have yep. multiple options. Anytime you have multiple options, you know, I always want to be at the destination spot. You have to pull into the driveway. So that's going to be my best opportunity to kill you. Always looking at destination locations and do because your bed in bedding areas, they're in, that's where they are most of their lives as far as an individual area. Um, why in the world do you not hunt in the interior of bedding areas? And one of the key things to hunting the interiors of bedding areas is scent control. Because when you're hunting interiors of bedding areas, 50% of the deer you see during the course of a day are probably going to be downwind of you on average. Because deer mm -hmm. can come from any direction in a bedding area, especially if they're with does, you know, pursuing does. Because there's no rhyme or reason to any rut activity during a rut. You know, routines kind of go out the window. So interiors of bedding areas, but you got to hunt them strategically as well. You have to have a really good scent control regimen and you have to commit to all day six. So you've got to be in your tree settled in about an hour and a half before daybreak and not leave until a half hour after dark. So they have to be all day six. You got to be in there before mature bucks are going to transition into the bedding area because they usually trans start transitioning into bedding areas, you know, in Michigan, 15 to minutes to 45 minutes before daybreak. And once they get in there, they feel secure and they'll move around in there. So you have to be in there well before daylight and set up and quiet. And then I always like to leave a half hour after dark because I want the deer to leave the bedding area before I get out and transition out. So I'm not spooking anything with my entry or my exit. 
The Hunter's Advantage podcast is powered by Out on a Limb Manufacturing. Out on a Limb is a family-owned company based right here in Oklahoma that makes tree stands, saddle platforms, climbing sticks, and so much more. Christian, I have a quick question. What's that? What bites sound harder, a hippo or an alligator? No idea. It's a trick question. The Ridge Runner 2.0 bites harder than both of them. But all jokes aside, we use these products all across the land on public or private. These help us get into any tree we want and hunt where the deer actually are. Most men go to the grocery store for their meat, but these products help you go to God's grocery store. I have used the Out on a Limb Ridge Runner 2.0 and the Shakar sticks for the last few years hunting public land bucks, and I've actually shot several bucks out of this setup. If you want to support the podcast and get some Out on a Limb equipment, make sure to go to outonalimmfg.com and use code HNTA10 for 10% off at checkout. Once again, if you want to support the podcast, Go to outonalimmfg.com and use code HNTA10 at checkout for 10% off. Now let's get back to the podcast. When he was saying that, Jake, about the oaks and stuff, that made me think a lot about there's this, John, there's this piece of public that we hunt in Oklahoma. Um, it's primarily pines, primarily cedars. And what one of our best, most fruitful spots, I've shot two really good bucks out of it on public, um, is a um, nice bowl with a bunch of pines, a bunch of cedars. It's a it's a mother trucker to get to. I mean, your stuff's hitting you on the face the whole way in, but it's only about four hundred yards off the road. Bedding area and, supposed to be. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a it's a bedding area. And one thing I noticed is one thing I noticed when I was dragging a buck out one time was one of our buddies came in. He was like, "Oh my god, there's white oaks all over this place." It was like bedding with food with transition. It's like all in this one yeah. big bowl. And like you said, sand control is tough in there, but Gosh dang, it's like a deer heaven if you can get in there without spooking everything out. Yeah, that's a, that is a, I mean, that's a spot you'd kill it with a proper scent control regiment. You'd kill a buck there every year. No doubt about it. That is a key, key spot. All you got to do is go in there, postseason, set up next to a couple of those oaks and, you know, hunt them accordingly during, and primarily during the rut phases is when you want to hunt those. Because yep. a lot of times during the early season, uh, bucks will just go in a bedding area and bed down for the day. You know, they have no reason they really get up and move around. They may get up and browse within 10 or 15 yards of their their bed, but they don't have a big reason to move around. During the rut phases, uh, they're in there. There's typically does in the area. They're, they're, if, they're, if they have corralled a doe, a hot doe, into the bedding area, you know, they'll breed her and she'll lay down for 15 or 20 minutes and he'll maybe lay down 10 or 15 yards downwind of her and then he'll get up and nudge her and They'll do the run through the bedding area to look for 40 or 50 yards, and they'll breed her again, and they'll just go through that process all day long. So they're moving around in there a lot. So rut, rut phases is the best time to hunt interiors of bedding areas. And maybe the first day or two are not too bad because you're going to have a 30 to 40-day break between hunting the first day or two in a bedding area. Mm-hmm and then hunting it during the rut phases. So you're going to give it a 30 to 40 day cool down period, depending on when the year opening day is in your in your state. Yeah. October one. So it's pretty much oh, exactly you'd have about a 25 day cool down. Yeah. Cause yeah. I'm assuming your rut phases are similar. Maybe not our, our rut pre rut starts 25th of October to the 28th. And yeah, that's, that's about right, right on. on. Peak rut starts around the 5th to the 7th. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. That's exactly right. So, John, if you had the just last question on the postseason um, scouting, because this is just fascinating to me. If you had just an average bow hunter, just 
come up to you and ask like, or say, I have 10 days to scout. Um, I can either do this um, and I can break this up in the postseason, in the preseason, in the summer, whenever. How much are you going to advise them of that time to be spent in the postseason, in the summer, and right before season of scout to be most effective on harvesting a, a, a mature buck, but one that's also pressured? So they got 10 days to scout. What should they? What segment of the season should they be scouting for? Or like early season rut phases? And they, I, they can hunt whenever, but they can they the time they have to scout is from February to the first the day before season. When would you advise them to use most of those days on scouting? Immediately the day after all the snow has melted. If you live in a northern tiered state, if you live in a state where you don't get snow but the rut phases are still the same as what we have. Uh, as soon as you're done hunting, as soon as the gun season's over, because a lot of times it's not safe to be scouting during gun season. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <in Texas. laughs> yeah, shooting a movement. As soon, as soon as the snow melts or as soon as you're capable and not worried about getting shot. And a lot of hunters have a, a difficult time identifying bedding areas. And I always say, whenever you're looking at a piece of property, you have to pretend everybody hunting here is trying to kill you. Okay. Mm-hmm. So when you look at it like everybody's trying to kill me, where are the only places on this property? I've already, I, you know, I've looked at aerials. I'm going in to look at this property. I know where the heavy cover is going to the aerials. You know, I want to go and look at the places where I am going to feel the most comfortable getting up and possibly moving during daylight hours and still feeling secure doing that. So that's going to eliminate looking at open timber with no understory. It's going to eliminate open fields. It's going to eliminate edges of crop fields. It's going to eliminate, you know, depending on the area, 50 to sometimes 90% of the areas you even have to look at. Oh, yeah. It's going to be looking at heavy, you know, if I had to tell somebody something, I would, I don't care what state you are in, even though, you know, Kansas is and your Nebraska's and your Dakota's and your Iowa's, the deer will move in open areas pretty freely. Still, if you gravitate, all of your hunting to security cover being near or on edges of, you know, transition security cover or embedding areas, you're, you're going to be very successful. As long as you're hunting the locations at the right time of the season, obviously, you know, if you're hunting a oak tree or you're hunting an apple tree or a persimmon tree, that's a feeding destination location. So you don't hunt there in the morning. Those are evening spots because you just moved your feeding at them in the morning with a morning entry. Um, you know, you have early season locations, you have morning locations, evening locations, rut phase locations, you know, like up here, typically our acorns in a lot of the areas where we don't have a huge amount of, of oaks, they're pretty much mowed up, you know, by the end of the early season, by mid-October, they're gone. Turkeys, squirrels, you know, all the critters are eating them and the deer. So, you know, those are early season locations. That's why once all the natural food base where I'm hunting is pretty much mowed up, you know, apples, acorns, that's why I gravitate most of my attention during the rut phases to hunting back in the bedding areas. Cover, security, cover, security, cover. I can't overstress that. I don't care where you hunt. Big mature bucks will always gravitate to security cover or edges of security cover if they have the option. So it almost sounds like, like you talking about like finding the bedding, like where they feel safe, you know, the rare places, I guess they feel safe, especially like on public ground, like, like, like you hunt and then finding, I guess, depending on what type, uh, time of the season it is, you're basically just trying to find the, uh, the, oh, what's the word for it? I lost it. The least common 
thing. Like, like if Oaks are, are, are hitting and they're like a, they're like a, a, I'm, I'm losing my words right now, but basically a limited resource and you're, you're focusing on those limited resources and then exploiting them. Yes. Like if you go into, you know, I've, I've scouted areas where there's literally three or four acres on an Oak Ridge of Oaks, just solid Oaks. So there's no rhyme or reason for them to be at any specific one at any specific time. So you're hunting basically whatever the acreage of Oaks there are, your little 30 yard or 60 yards zone, 30 yards around the tree in each direction is a pretty small cut of what could possibly be the potential up there. Whereas if you're hunting in an area and you've got an isolated oak sitting all by itself and it's got the adequate security cover or perimeter cover around it and adequate transition cover to it, security cover to it from a uh, known bedding area. Yeah. That one's probably going to get a lot of the activity because you're looking at a singular feeding source. Mm. As opposed to having a hundred oak trees and you got to pick the one car blanche that you think he's going to be feeding at the day you go. Is that kind of what you were talking about? Yeah, yeah. 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 I was just trying to basically dumb it down for, for people like me that, that, <laughs> you know, like the less words, the better, you know what <laughs> I mean? <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Always, always look, always look for isolated singular sign, especially when it comes to food. Um, because that's that's where you're going to get your best opportunity, you know. And like if if there was deer prefer white oak acorns over red oaks, a hundred to one. I mean, it's not even a contest. They'll always mile the white oaks oak acorns up if if they can over the reds because they have less tannins. You guys okay. could you guys could actually open up a white oak acorn and eat it. It tastes a little bit like a macadamia nut. Mm. But if you mm. pop a red oak acorn in your mouth. You'll spit it out immediately. <laughs> so bitter. And deer prefer whites over red. But if I were hunting, let's say, uh, in an area where there were two or three white oaks, and then there were along the edge of the security cover, there were some red oaks, but the white mm-hmm. oaks were out a little more out in the open with no security cover around them, I'd set my location up at the red oaks because it's close to the security cover. A mature buck is likely going to come and feed on some red oak acorns because he's got a quick exit into security cover as opposed to being vulnerable out here eating white oak acorns in the daytime where he has to cover a pretty big bit of ground before he hits security cover if he's shot at. That's just the way big deer think. That's the way you would think if people were shooting at you as well. Well, I'm glad they're not. I'd already be, <laughs> yeah, I'd be that two-year-old on the wall. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. That John on the on the topic of bedding. That's that's so fascinating that, you, that we're that we're talking about this subject because I I have a property um, that me and another buddy lease. It's 110 acres. If you walked into this property and you were trying to sell it like to somebody that didn't hunt, it would be the biggest piece of dump, nasty looking place that you no one would want to buy it if they weren't a deer hunter. But we leased this property three years ago. Um, we've hunted it three times. All it is is like 10 foot tall Johnson grass and uh, tree limbs fell over. Has these, it's basically 100 acres of bedding. In yeah. three hunts there, we've killed a seven and a half year old buck, a seven, another seven and a half, and a six and a half year old buck. And I was like, th- it, it opened my mind to just the like, hey, it doesn't matter if, if I have food or if I have everything else. If I, get, if I can get in a big buck's bedroom where he feels safe walking anytime during the day. I can kill him. And we've hunted three times and killed three bucks that old. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. I don't think I've ever heard of that high a percentage, but that, that doesn't surprise me that that was the case because 
Yeah, security covers. It, it's all about security cover, man. They just feel comfortable moving in security cover. You can have all the sign in the world. You could find a location that there's a hundred scrapes and three hundred thousand buck rubs, and you know, but it's along the edge of an open crop field. You know, there's, That's exactly there's timber along the crop field, but the crop field's in hay or it's in soybeans or it's picked corn or whatever. You know, that sign is irrelevant because a mature buck is not going to come and visit that in the daytime because he's vulnerable. Sure, he's going to visit it after dark, but he's not going to visit it in the daytime. It's all about security. The but only this time it's not about security if there's a buck on a hot, physically on a hot doe. Then all that stuff just goes out the window. I think if the doe went into Walmart, he'd follow her in. <laughs> yeah, we've seen that. There's some videos of that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I was thinking awesome. about that. The um. It, it was crazy because in, in the world of like habitat management, you know, it's, it's really cool to, to plant food plots and to do all this stuff and, you know, put in a kiddie pools for water. Like people are just doing all these different projects. I felt that way when I stepped onto this lease, I'm like, man, we got to put food over here. We got to bring this in over here. And, and I was like, you know what? Thankfully I don't have enough money to do any of these things. So I just left it like it was. And I was like, my buddy has several thousand acres. He was like, I think you're hunting the best piece of ground around here and you're doing nothing to it it's kind of pissing me off <laughs> and i was like I, I, I know that's it's it's just crazy to me if i had a choice of buying five acres of prime bedding ground versus 200 acres of ag mis mixed with open timber or just mm -hmm. open timber with no understory no security cover on the ground i'd take five acres of bedding area any day of the week any day of the week you don't know how many guys send me emails and they got 10 acres or 20 acres of open timber and they never see any mature bucks. They see deer coming in and eating acorns and stuff, but because there's no understory, there's no security cover. They never, they get pictures of them at night, but they never see them. In the daytime. That's, that's exactly what, what, uh, I kind of see. I'm fortunate enough for my family to own, I guess, quite a bit of land, but I would say it's like 300 acres, but probably 285 of it is nothing but hay meadow and granted they have like a pecan orchard uh on on, on some of it but kind of like you said like you can get some great pictures and especially nighttime pictures uh for example just this last season like i had i think five five bucks that that would be well over pope and young and i was like if i see one of those you know like it's going to be tough. And, but there's one in, in particular that had like flyers going everywhere. Fast forward. I only got pictures of him at night and, but he was pretty common and fast forward a little bit, uh, into the season, of course, scrolling through Facebook matched up the trail cam pictures with the, uh, grip and grin that the neighbor was doing about a mile North. And if you look at his property, he only has like maybe 10, 20 acres, I think. And, I know this isn't very good, uh, like quality deer management, but he and his wife and his son killed, I think three or four bucks off four, that place four bucks off that place. And they were good bucks. Uh, that All one of them were. scored like one, <laughs> one, one sixty something. And then I guarantee you the, the eight or nine point that his son killed was probably at least one thirties. But, uh, yeah, yeah, like I have 300 acres that I can hunt, but only, five, 10 of it is, is, is maybe huntable. And then they got the bedding and then that's where all the shooters go. So all about the bedding, man. And a lot of times when you're scouting and you, you know, like I kind of have a standing rule up here in Michigan because the public lands here get just pounded to death. Those there's 40 bow hunters 
per square mile, minimal. <laughs> minimal. <laughs> and so I have a standing rule. If I if I can walk to a location, I don't care how much sign is there, I won't set it up because other people will fudge it up for me. They'll other people will find it as well. So in, in Michigan I, I have to cross creeks and rivers with waders or hip boots before I'll even look at it. A lot of times once you cross those areas or you go back into a bedding area, the bedding area will open up and just like you said, Christian, you know, there'll be oaks in there. You know, it's it's a bedding area, but back within bedding areas there's little open areas, there's little mounds, there's little mm-hmm. hills where there's timber and some trees, maybe some mass trees. And anytime you find um you know, relatively dense security cover that's primarily marsh grasses, tall weeds, brush, red brush, uh, whatever the case may be, um, there's going to be openings. And whenever you find those openings, there's almost always runways going through those because it's a little short, uh, small area of path of least resistance. Mm-hmm. And you'll find scrapes and stuff like that. And if you find, man, when you can find oaks in a bedding area that are dropping food, yeah, it doesn't get any better than that. Ain't got to move very far, huh? <laughs> yeah. no. Well, no, and it's during the daytime. That's the cool thing, you know. Yeah. I like it. So, it's out in timber, like you're talking about, where you get pictures of them at night. They they can hit those in the daytime. It's all about daytime activity, you know. Right. All the pictures in the world are worthless. All the sign in the world is worthless if it's not made during the daytime by a mature buck. It's irrelevant. Legally. I just read an article today about a guy that they caught poaching in Michigan last month. Oh, really? Ten counts, yeah. Good man. So while we got you on here, we did want to talk about, I know you're an author about this specific topic is hunting pressured whitetails, bow hunting pressured whitetails specifically. Um, For people that are um, listening to the podcast, how would you define a pressured whitetail and what were what are the behavior differences between a pressured whitetail and and maybe some of these unpressured ones that you always see on TV all the time? Well, pressured means they've been shot at since they've had their first set of antlers. <laughs> now that's pressured. Or during gun season, okay. You know, we have three hundred and forty thousand bow hunters in Michigan. Um, I don't know what Oklahoma is. Maybe a hundred thousand. Kansas is like twenty four thousand. Nebraska is like eighteen thousand. Um, so we, we've got a lot of bow hunters and the public lands get just pounded to death. And, you know, a buck, when he reaches the ages of three and a half, three and a half year olds are rare here on public land, extremely rare. And there's a lot of, you know, like in Northern Michigan, where it's all sandy soil, three and a half year old bucks don't even go a hundred inches. They just don't have the minerals in the soil to do that. But, um, they're, they're just really rare and they've been shot at before. You're never going to find a, a three and a half year old here that hasn't been shot at before. It's just That's not going to happen. They may not have wounds on them, but like I said, 28 out of my 34 Michigan book books have had wounds on them or physical projectiles in them when I've skinned them. And I've killed 20 out of state. I have never shot a deer out of state that had a wound in it, ever. Yeah. Um I've killed a couple in Ohio and Ohio is a pretty heavily hunted state. Yeah, it is. You hunting in Michigan, I assume just because uh, of the pressure you talk about, you've gotten walked up on once or twice while you're in the stand, right? Oh, I've had guys walk under my tree. Yeah. In fact, I had one of my most prized bucks. I shot a 14 point uh, at straight up noon. It was on an all day sit between two bedding areas. It was a transition zone between bedding areas. And I had a guy walk under my tree at 1030. We've just gotten oh two gosh. inches of snow. 
and yeah, just got two inches of snow, but it was kind of warm. It was a very wet snow. It was like 34 degrees, 33 degrees. And this guy come walking through the woods. He's wearing a red plaid shirt and blue jeans. He had leather boots on. I know I always look at everything when somebody's walking through. He had leather. I really noticed the leather boots because that leaves the order big time. <laughs> and uh, he had a bow, carrying a bow. And when he got under the tree, you know, I yelled down at him and he looked up the tree and I said something again because he wasn't looking high enough. He looked up and he finally saw me and I said, man, I'm out here. I appreciate it if you, if you leave. So he ended up when he left. Was it that I, nice? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, when he left, he, he walked out one of my shooting lanes. He walked right through one of my pretty wide shooting lanes. So I'm sitting there and I'm like, God, do I get down? Do I leave? You, you know what? No, I'm between two bedding areas. So if there was a deer in that bedding area or that bedding area and they're going to transition through here, they didn't see this guy because he's going through the gap. You know, he's going through the gap of the between the two bedding areas because they were dense and he didn't want to walk through the crap with his stuff. And uh, so I said, I decided to wait and about 11, by 1130, the snow had melted. And uh, I was after this particular buck. I've been pursuing him for three and a half years. And the only times I had ever seen this deer was during the middle of the day. I never saw him in the morning or in the evening, always in the middle of the day. So here he comes. I see this buck coming out of this bedding area, coming from the north, heading south. I don't know which way the wind was blowing, by the way. It was after my second throw. <laughs> so he's, he's coming north to south, and he's going to go right through that shooting lane where that man walked through. So I, he walked right dead through the center of that shooting lane. And that shooting lane was relatively wide. It was probably six feet wide. So I'm watching, and it was on my left side. So I'm right-handed, so it was perfectly right there. I didn't even have to move around in my saddle. And as he's, as the buck's nose is coming into the shooting lane, I drew my bow, and as soon as his chest was partially exposed, I, you know, I, I did a man and stopped him and took that shot because I knew if he took one step more. He was going to smell where that man walked those legs. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, yeah, I've had guys walk under me quite a few times. Actually. Yeah. So that's that's kind of where I was getting at. Uh, you said on, on, on that hunt you decided to stay. I guess that's kind of what I'm trying to ask is like what makes you like – kind of decide like whether to stay or whether to go to, to like maybe a backup you have on down? Uh, it, it would be very, very rare that I would leave. Um, Cause in a bedding, you know, if I'm in a bedding area during the rut phases and somebody goes by, you know, bedding areas on public land are usually huge. So the odds of him spooking every deer in it is probably pretty slim. And, you know, me getting down and leaving and going someplace else, I'm, not probably not going to do any better so i just usually stick it out now there's been many times where i've been in a tree on an all-day sit seen activity someplace else maybe a couple hundred yards back farther in some some other area right and, uh, and, and you know while i'm saddle hunting and i'll actually pull my stuff going down the tree and i'll slowly and methodically move back to that area and get up my biggest buck i ever shot 180 incher was yeah. one of those. I got down out of the tree at about 1030 because I was seeing activity farther back, about a 200 yards closer to the big river. Um, and I moved back there and found a big primary scrape area that I had never seen before. And I set up on it and I shot that buck that evening. Was that in Michigan? 
that was in Iowa. Baseball I got in Michigan was a 167 net, and that was a state record. Good God. That's awesome. That's 167 crazy. in a lot of states, in a lot of counties in Iowa, they won't even lift their ball off the rack for that. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> if I ever get there, I'm just going to hang it up. Lift their ball up. So have you ever, have you ever encountered like a place, um, on public where it has heavy pressure and some areas of the property have very heavy pressure. Some areas have very minimal pressure. Like we were, we were hunting a place in 2020 where it seemed like if you sit on that first Ridge in that mountain habitat, those deer are skittish. They're spooking when they're walking in, they're looking up at trees. But if you go four, 500, 600 yards back on that secondary Ridge system, it's like you're walking up to a petting zoo. Like those deer, you walk up to them and they, take a few steps and they just stop. They're like, Hey, what's, what's going on here? Have you ever noticed that on public lands? Like just very small differences, but these deer act completely different. Not really in Michigan. Although I should, I take that back. Anytime I go and I go across a river with waders or a canoe or go across a lake in a boat, obviously I'm going to a secluded area where they feel more comfortable moving in the daylight. Because if I stayed on the side where all the hunting pressure is, not only are they not going to be looking in trees, they're not going to be there. <laughs> you know, yeah. they're not going to be there in the first place because you know the hunting pressure actually pushes deer back into those remote bedding areas where you have to, you know, work harder than everybody else to get back to them. So in that kind of scenario, yeah. And I've hunted a lot of hill country down where you're talking about. I've I've never really noticed it in hill country other than it seems like because some of those sections are huge. You know, they're miles. It seems like the farther you go back in, the less concerned about human activity deer have. Mm-hmm. So that, you know, the closer you get, you know, once you get a half a mile back, you've lost a lot of your hunting competition. And I think the deer realize that just like once they cross a river and go into a bedding area, uh, you know, they feel a lot more comfortable moving in the daytime. So, yeah, that 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 kind of plays out anywhere. There's lots of areas in Michigan where there's people with lease property and big family farms where they're managing it and they, they kill nice deer every year. Um, you know, whereas a property a mile and a half away from that, you know, everybody in the section there, maybe there's 20 property owners in the section. They all own five to 20 acre parcels and they all have one or two guys hunting in it. So there's 30 bow hunters and trees opening day, you know, and that's yeah, a yeah. pressure zone where a mile away, this guy owns 600 acres and, you know, manages it and he hunts it by himself so the deer once they're on his property they feel very comfortable i i was talking to a guy actually maybe six months ago somebody sent me an email and i think he was from ohio and he was hunting public land next to this old man this old man owned a farm and he didn't hunt at all but he didn't let anybody hunt and he had a hay field out back and this guy would sit on this public land and he would see this monster buck come out into that hay field every afternoon and just come out in that wide open hay field and just eat. And he would never, ever come close to the, the fence on the public land side. He knew. And <laughs> he, said, he said one time he got a picture of that buck on the public land, but it was like at one o'clock in the morning. Oh, oh yeah. But, but there you, on that scenario, you've got a deer that's, totally oblivious to hunting pressure as long as he's on that guy within his fences whereas he knows on the other side of the fence it's dangerous yeah. and they usually learn that as they grow up I and mean, they never forget how you know 
some people think deer don't have memories, but deer have really good memories. <laughs> <laughs> Dang elephant. Yeah. Yeah, they definitely do. So one of the one of the things that I think has gotten extremely popular in the deer hunting space is these one these out of state one week trips um, wherever you want to go. You live in the South, maybe you go to the Midwest. You live in the Midwest, you stay in the Midwest because that's where all the big deer are. Um, what do you you know for folks that can do minimal scouting and you know really their only time allotted to going and checking out that place is when they're hunting. Like, what do you think is some of the reasons that are some of the main struggles that people that are doing these one week out of state trips, um, have, and what's something that maybe they could do to fix those? Cause I know the majority of you said a lot of your hunts on your website are those one week type of hunts. What, what allows you to be successful on those? Well, typically if I'm going by myself, which I did for years, I, I, they were usually seven days. Um, when I go with my boys now, I, we always do 11 day hunts because, Usually it's a day of travel on each end, and then the first two days we scout. But I never went out of state and pre-scouted a property and then came hmm. home and went back on it. Never, ever. And I went on probably close to 30 out-of-state hunting trips. So I always, when I go out of state, I always scout it the first day, if not day and a half. If I'm happy with what I've scouted out and prepped the first day, and it's hard to scout a decent piece of property and, and prep two or three locations in a day. That's very difficult yeah. to do. So usually it's at least a day or a day and a half. And uh, so anymore, I try to plan, even if I go by myself, I, I try to plan eight to 10 days. I, I think, you know, as long as you're going to take a vacation, you know, a week is just a nice, neat little package. Okay. You know, leave on a Friday and stay through two weekends, you know, mm-hmm. make it a 10 day trip. That way you don't feel rushed. Anytime you go out and you feel rushed, you feel like, well, I'm only going to scout this morning because I want to hunt this evening. You know, Bad decisions get made. You, you're just anxious. And if you have, if you give yourself a couple extra days to get your scouting and location prep done, and then you hunt accordingly, um, I think you'd be a lot more successful. Because a lot of people just put too much pressure on themselves because you're going to have a travel day on each end usually. Um, so if you're looking at you know, five, five and a half days, including the first evening of hunts. Uh, plus, you got to do all your scouting in that time frame. Uh, it's just too much pressure, in my opinion. It's a, yeah, that's a that's a really good point. I think one of the we've always got to do quite a bit of um, you know summer and yeah, like mainly mainly summer scouting um, on these places because a lot of the states we're hunting are border states, right? States like Kansas. Right. And one of the things that pitfalls that we've fallen into is like we get really good trail cam picks in the summer, whether in their daylight, whether they're not in the daylight, but we get married to these spots based on these trail cam pictures. And it's like, I can't go sit anywhere else. Like, look, this was here three months ago. You know, like how, how do you get, how do you get out of that? Like, is it just trusting yourself as a, as a bow hunter and saying like, well, I, I know for these reasons that deer is not going to be here now. And I just have to go through that process or what do you do? Absolutely. I don't care. I mean, if, if I were in that same scenario and I saw these summer pictures of these big bucks, bucks move during the course of a year, you know, in the summer, they may have a totally different preferred fooding feeding location than they do, you know, during early season or during the rut phases. Um, they're going to change. I just, a guy just sent two days ago, I get about 50 emails a day asking me hunting questions. Okay. <laughs> and a guy sent me an email three days ago and it was a snippet of a study from Mississippi, um, University of Mississippi. And they studied, a, this was not a captive deer. 
this, but it was a mature buck, and he was living on his main living space during the winter was on the would have been on the east side of the Mississippi River, maybe a mm-hmm. mile. We off. just read this. Yep. Yeah, I heard of that. That deer traveled fourteen miles to to summer. He summered. He crossed the river, which is almost a mile wide. He That's crossed nuts. the river and went several miles on the west side of the river, and he summered there because that was a preferred feeding area for him. And then he'd come back across the river during October and into the rut phase, which could be in his core, you know, rut phase area. So summer pictures out in open areas, you got to keep in mind, if it's in an open area, you know, once hunting season gets there and there's any semblance of hunting pressure, he's going to move into security cover areas. So that open area where he was feeding, yeah, that's pretty much meaningless. Unless there's a bedding area right next to that open area. Feeding, then that would be definitely a target zone. Didn't they say that buck with uh, that whole trip was basically? I guess they wrapped it up into the word of like uh, an excursion. Yeah, isn't that what uh, that buck did? And you said it did come back across during yep. during the fall. Yep, I think it was a two year study on the same deer they had him collared, and he would go fourteen miles from where he would summer from where. Yeah, he that's. <laughs> I mean, that's pretty normal up in the Upper Peninsula in Michigan and in oh, really? Wisconsin. Yeah, deer will because they basically there's no ag up there whatsoever so everything is either browse or mass and when they get you know it's not odd for them to get you know 15 feet of snow during the course of a winter of course mm-hmm. that packs down so the deer actually move to yarding areas in like late november early december they will move 14 15 sometimes 20 miles to cedar swamps where mm-hmm. cedars kind of protect them from the wind in the winter. And also cedars have a canopy and they love eating cedar boughs. I don't know. And, you know, you talked about cedars in that bedding area you were at, but yep. their cedars are a main food source in the winter up here in Northern Michigan. That's interesting. Yeah. Oh yeah. Cedar boughs. It's huge. I mean, you can, you can drive down the roads and if you see a cedar swamp, there will be a browse line and it'll be like a ruler going across great line browse line. <laughs> that's nuts the, the gps stuff is so fascinating to me I, I i was reading one on the national deer association's website uh, the other day and they were talking about how different but there's basically like two main personality styles on bucks like one there's one style that's like home bodies and there's another that are like the ex, these excursion bucks like they sure. they have three different home ranges throughout the year like they're living completely separate uh, separate lives in different parts of the seasons. And it's just, it's so interesting to me because as a bow hunter, it's almost like you have to rely more on your woodsmanship than what your trail cameras can tell you. Because now it's like the trail cams aren't telling you where to hunt. They're giving you a piece of information to add into that bigger picture of what's going on with the sign and the scouting and all those things. But it's so hard. There's so many trail camologists and I'm probably one of them this year, but, um, it's hard to give that up and just, and go on what you know to be true. Cause it's not what you see, right? Like that's faith It's going <laughs> trust in yourself. It, it's kind of interesting because I became a trail cam junkie too. And I is, I mean, and if you read any of my books, I'm very anti motion camera because it was always, like I said earlier, they were always cameras you had to physically visit and change mm-hmm. the cards on. Yep. Well now with cell cameras, that's not the case. You can, you know, I go in and I'll put them 14 feet, up the tree where they're out of their peripheral vision shooting down on a destination feeding location typically and i can tell what the inventory is 
And when I when we go to Kansas, we put a camera at every single location. We're actually putting them at our hunting location. Mm. And, you know, whether there's multiple runways converging or typically it's a primary scrape area, so we got it over the scrapes. And we hunt according to what we see on camera when we're in Kansas because it's so much easier. There's so many mature bucks. They they compete a lot more for breeding rights because there's so many, you know, dominant mature bucks. It's nothing like here. And um, and basically if we see if we see a deer on camera one evening, we'll be in that tree the next evening if it's a deer we want to target. So I, I totally we totally hunt cameras when we're in Kansas. I don't mm-hmm. hunt cameras here. I usually in Michigan. I put cameras in inventory locations just to see what's in the area. Yeah. How many of those cell cams have, have uh, you got stolen? Because I feel like if we were to hang a cell cam up in public, that's, I mean, that's easy grabs, you know, because we've had a couple stolen in Oklahoma and we didn't have any stolen in Kansas, but we did have a couple of SD cards removed. And uh-huh, so we kind of got the hint on that to kind of back out of there. <laughs> but uh, Were they yeah. cell cameras that you had the cards removed? No, just cheap SD cameras. Yeah, 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 they're just like knockoff SDs, but yeah. On public, on public land, I use Browning, just, you know, $100 uh, second ops cameras. Cheap cameras. I get you. But it, uh, when we're hunting in Kansas, if we're on, I've got two farms out there that I hunt. We always use the Kodiaks out there. And we right. use, we'll usually have, I think this last year we had 12 cameras up in Kansas, and uh, four of them were Brownings on walk-on. I don't think we hunted any public land. We, I, I killed, I killed a buck on walk-on property. I went back because I, I didn't kill one on our uh, November hunt. My son John did on his very first sit. Um, I didn't. Everything I wanted to shoot was busted to hell. So I went back by myself in mid-November, and I, um, I actually posted a YouTube video because I have a YouTube channel. Um, I shot one on November fifteenth, and it was in thirty-five to forty mile an hour winds, and it was thirteen degrees. Oh my God. The tree was blowing like crazy. I had to wait for the tree to stop at full while it was a full draw to take to take the shot. And I was Goodness. I was actually using an old abandoned house that was abandoned in 1985. And I was using that as a pinch point. So this house, I actually videoed the house while I'm in the tree. My tree is literally four yards from the front door of the house. So that's like a Michigan version of like Seek One. <laughs> yeah, I'm not familiar with that. Oh <laughs> uh, well, well, Seek One is is he's a pretty big they do like, like suburban uh, hunting. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, Seek One does like suburban hunting, and like they'll they'll basically go to like housing additions, like like around oh. lakes or or whatever, and hunt like ten yards from from a person Somebody's mowing or house. something, and kill giants. So that's basically like like the Michigan Seek One. Yeah, yeah old yeah, house. <laughs> Hunting in suburbia is pretty easy. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, this was in Kansas. This was not in. Oh, Michigan. nice. This oh, okay, okay. Not in Kansas, and I actually videoed the house because the roof's got holes in it. And it's, I mean, the place is falling apart. But there was a. The house was. Let's see. The house was four yards to my northeast. It was a bedding area to the northwest of the house, maybe eighty yards away. And then to the southeast, there was a crop field about a quarter of a three-eighths of a mile away, probably. So the deer coming out of that bedding area to the northwest came around, and they were skirting the edge of this house. Because all of the vegetation and brush that they had around the house back in the 80s, this is all overgrown now. This house yeah. is 
totally encapsulated with brush and weeds. That's so pretty cool, though. Circling the edge of this house, going right around the corner of it, on route to that crop field to the southeast. And huh. so that's where I put my tree in. Shot. <laughs> really I never awesome. would have thought of that. That is that is really cool. It so, was cool too. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. I want. I know you've been you've mentioned it several times throughout the podcast, but let's let's talk a little bit about primary scrapes. Like, what makes an area what a primary scrape area is is one like what is a primary scrape area and like can you just explain that? Yeah, sure. A primary scrape area is typically a zone. It's going to be a little bit of an open zone, and it's going to have multiple scrapes within this zone. I've seen as many as. Oh God, what's the most scrapes I've seen? Maybe 11 within a 30 yard zone. Now, most, most primary scrapes area are within a 10 yard zone, you know, 10 yard area, but they are always 100% of the time. They're social, they're social activity areas for one. They're usually perennial. They're there every single year, but they're always located where there's a lot, an influx of doe activity. Because that's where the bucks lay their sign is where there's a lot of doe activity. And that's where they pick up, you know, that's one of the areas they'll visit during pre-rut when they start, you know, looking for those early ester stoves. As long, and they'll do that in the daytime. They'll visit those scrape areas in the daytime if the adequate security cover around the perimeter of the scrape area is there. And there's adequate transition security cover to that scrape area from a known bedding area. So if there's a primary scrape area, let's say, let's say there's a primary scrape area on the edge of a crop field. So I'm scouting. Here's a, here's a bunch of scrapes on the edge of a crop field. There's four or five scrapes next to some bushes because they're always going to be under some semblance of a tree or a bush because they have overhanging looking branches that are scent marked as well. Um, and let's say there's a hundred yards of open timber on the timber side of this crop field. And then there's a bedding area. Okay, and let's say that crop field is in standing corn this year that I'm going to I'm going to set this up. And this year that crop field is in standing corn. Okay, if there's a deer in the bedding area and he's one of the main users of this primary scrape area, he is not going to during daylight hours get up and go through that open vulnerable timber to work one of those scrapes. He's just not going to do it because he's going to be too vulnerable. He may come out of the corn because it's butts right up to it and work a scrape, but he's not going to come out of that. So, you know, that's a primary scrape area that I probably wouldn't hunt unless if I were going to hunt that when it was in standing corn, because I want to try to pull something out of the corn. I'd probably do a rattle sequence or a sparring sequence in conjunction with sitting at that. Um, but usually by the rut phases, that corn is going to be down. So that spot's going to be 100% worthless as soon as the corn's cut because there's no, not going to be any deer better than the pit cornfield. Yeah. You with me on that? Yeah. Most of the time, you're going to find primary scrape areas at, at feeding locations, you know, around perimeters, crop fields, at oak trees where there's maybe just like I mentioned earlier, there's just a few oak trees. So it's a primary, you know, it's a major destination spot because there's only a few of them. A lot of does are going to be feeding in that area, so they may lay down some scrapes around that area or at an apple tree or in the south of persimmon tree. Uh, but it's, it's primary. It may be, let's say, at the base of a ridge. You know, it could be at a terrain feature dump where you've got the base of a ridge kind of swings around and it butts up into a bedding area. 
you know, that's going to be a spot where there's going to be a lot of doe activity coming along the base of the ridge and then filtering down into the bedding area. That's where there's going to be some scrapes probably. So there's a lot of different things and places a scrape area could be. It could be in a pinch point, you know, between a bedding and a feeding area. You got a big, big area of timber and you got a, a feeding area over here. And then there's some decent transition security cover between the bedding and the feeding area. Um, where that pinches down the narrowest, there's likely going to be scrapes there because that's a that's a funnel or pinch point of doe activity. So there's a lot of doe traffic going through that pinch. That's why there would probably be scrapes there. But they're always around areas where there's a lot of doe activity. So it's it sounds like kind of the art with the primary scrape areas is understanding which one of those a mature buck is going to utilize during daylight hours and which one of those he's going to hit, but it just might not be when you can capitalize and kill him. That's the art of deer hunting period. <laughs> <laughs> Knowing when to hunt what, and does it have the adequate security cover for a mature buck to visit in the daylight? Yeah. And that's, that's why bedding areas are so key because they are 100% daylight oriented because they're in security cover already. Yeah. And I think that's one of the, one of the issues and one of the things we're still growing in like bow hunting. I've been bow hunting for 13 years and I'm still learning to discern like, okay, just cause an area does has sign. That doesn't mean that's somewhere you need to be up in a tree. You know, like you still have to be able to discern that. And that's, that's kind of one of the biggest battles for me. It's like, do I leave sign to find sign? Like all that stuff. So that's, that's good to hear though. That I think that is the art of deer hunting, right? It's finding that. Oh, without a doubt. Yeah. D- being able to di- differentiate what is daylight activity and what's nighttime activity by a mature buck. You know, I don't know how many times I've done seminars or put up Facebook posts or YouTube videos and I'll say, well, you know, you need to do this or this to kill a mature buck. And somebody will reply, well, I don't do that. And I, I see bucks. And I always, my reply is always, what kind of bucks are you seeing? You know? If you're seeing one and a half and two and a half year old bucks and that's what your goals are, that's wonderful. I'm happy for you. That's great. You know, but if your goals are killing three and a half, you know, mature bucks, three and a half, four and a half, you know, where you guys are at, you have six and a half and seven and a half year old bucks. We don't have that here. Mm -hmm. Uh, But if that's your goal, you have to look for the type of sign and you have to hunt smart and know when to hunt it. And you have to know if that spot is going to be something he will move to or move through during daylight hours. Being able to differentiate daylight activity from nighttime activity is a big part of killing mature bucks. For sure. We had a, uh, so we had a guy, Alan, that's like a super fan of you. And he sent us, he, he sent us a bunch of questions that he wanted to ask you, but yeah. I've got, I've got a couple that I think are, are really good ones. Cause I think we've covered a lot of the topics. Um, he talked about your, your book, bow hunting pressured whitetails. Um, if you, yeah, if yeah. you rewrote this book today, would there be anything different that you would say in the book? And, and what would that be? Huge, huge difference. In fact, that's what I'm doing right now. Like I mentioned, I'm writing a book. Yeah. yeah. I mean, if you looked at Bow Hunting Pressured Whitetails, which was published in 2003, versus uh, Bow Hunting Whitetails, Eber Hartway, which was my third book published in 2010, there's a lot of differences in those two books. There's a lot more. Hunting has changed. Hunting has evolved over the years because of hunting pressure and people are targeting more mature bucks and there's more leases. You know, it's harder to get, you know, hunting permission, public lands, more pressured because everything else is getting leased. So hunting is evolving. 
not necessarily for the better, but it's still evolving. So you have to change. So there's a lot of things in my 2010 book that are not in the 2003 book. Um, and that's going to be the same with this book. This is going to be a 13-year time gap between 2010 and now. And I've got a lot more information and a lot more detailed information in what I'm going to be putting out hopefully this fall or next spring from what I did in 2010. So so uh, as far as picking a certain thing, cornfields. You know, in 2003, you know, I was doing a lot of rattling, but I was primarily doing it in bedding areas. You know, when I say rattling, I'm not talking about rattling like you see the crazy TV guys doing where they're just bashing the hell out of the antlers because <laughs> yeah. lots of big bucks where they're at and they're used to hearing that. I'm talking about subtle sparring sequences. But uh, I've been I've been doing a lot of sparring sequences along standing corn, and it's been extremely successful for me. So in the 2010 book, I've got a complete chapter on hunting corn. Um, and this, this book here, I'm going to have chapters on staging areas, which I think I had a chapter on staging areas in that first boning pressured white-tailed books, but I didn't have it in my next two. I'm going to add that again. Uh, because back then, everybody looked at a staging area as a feeding staging area where bucks would go stage at an area before they entered a crop field after dark. They would stage close to it. Um, but now my staging area chapter on this book is going to be rut staging areas where bucks may stay waiting, you know, in the mornings for does to come out of open areas, vulnerable open areas, and you come through these primary scrape areas or come in into a grove of oaks, they'll stage there and wait for them to come through. So they are not being vulnerable. They're not getting, they're not moving through the timber. They're staying stationary, just waiting for the does to come through to them. So it's a rut staging area versus a bedding to feeding area, staging area. So there's going to be a lot of new information. Yeah. Well, I know after he hears what you just said, the next question he's going to ask is when is that book coming out? Do you all have a time yet? We're hoping this fall, but man, I'm working on one chapter. I've worked on one chapter for two weeks. Okay. So this it's, even though it's going to be a book on saddle hunting, this is going to have a ton of hunting information for anybody in the country. How many hours do you typically have into each book? If, if you were to like break it down, I guess. Well, the first, the first three books I co-authored with my son, Chris, Mm-hmm. So um, he's deceased. He had he died of cancer a few years ago. But mm. that uh, how many hours? Wow, a lot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, a couple thousand probably. Goodness, wow. I am very detail oriented. I just don't like to do general statements that anybody can make. Right, explain so a layman can understand what I'm saying. So. All the information in my books and my articles, I, I try real hard to give as much detail so there's no no gray areas, if you will. Right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Well, I know where your first uh, first sale of the book's coming from. Our buddy Alan's definitely he's, he's picking up one. <laughs> hey, um, by the way, um, I'm going to send you, Christian, uh, all my email documents on scent control, and you can pass them on to Jake. All right. That, sound, that sounds good. Well, I would really like you guys to read at least the first two documents out of the 12. I'll, I'll give I'll give it a shot. Um, okay. Alan had another really good question. He said, yeah. "It's it's a two part question. So, what equipment has made bow hunting better in the last thirty years, and and what has made it worse?" <laughs> That's a loaded question. <laughs> um, obviously, 
to me, what's made it worse is to a lot of people what has made it better. Okay, crossbows. Obviously, the advent of full inclusion crossbows has made it better for a lot of people because they never have to practice anymore and they can shoot twice as far as they used to accurately. So mm, that's yep. made it better for a lot of people. Um, I personally feel like crossbows should be in a special season. You know, in Michigan, they used to be, you could use them during gun season or you could use them if you had some sort of a handicap or a doctor's permit, which that's yep. wonderful. You know, you never want to keep anybody out of the woods. Right. Use a compound. But um, as far as compound bows, what has what has made it better or worse? I think compound technology is just phenomenal. I'm shooting a 40 pound bow and it's, you know, with light arrows and a smaller cut, you know, a G5 striker broadhead, fixed blade broadhead. And it's shooting faster than my 65 pound bow that I hunted with in the 70s. You, mm-hmm. know, you know, when compounds first came out pretty much. So uh, the technology has advanced big time and the bows are lighter. There's no vibration to them. I've been on Matthew's pro staff for hunting pro staff for quite a few years. And, um, you know, I shot fingers for years and years and years for the first 52, three, 52 years I bow in it. I shot fingers. Really? And the only two companies that made fingers bows were Hoyt and Matthews, you know, long axle to axle compound. So, and, with finger bows, you have to shoot a lighter let off because you want that pressure against your fingers, so it snaps off your finger. It doesn't. You don't want it to roll off like a eighty-five percent let off. Yeah. So uh, now I'm shooting a release, but you know I sh- that's the one reason I got into Matthews is because they made fingers bows. Um, but you know all the bow companies make great bows. It's just what feels good to you. The technology is there for you know maybe one's ten feet per second faster than the other. Yeah. Feet. At the speeds they're shooting nowadays, that's irrelevant. <laughs> yeah, my my uncle has a uh, he's still got a his first bow is a Browning in the eighty. Yeah. It's from the eighties. Oh 80s. my god, it's awesome! It's, it's awesome. Good, I, isn't it? Yeah, I tried it's to pull fun. it back. It's like eighty pounds. I about pulled my shoulder out of socket the first <laughs> try. And I tried. It was a challenge. Like the first five years <laughs> I was bow hunting to get this thing back. It's you. I swear you couldn't put both legs on it and pull it back <laughs> with two hands. It's so hard. Well, it makes you appreciate. Were- it. 50% let off the early yeah. bows back in the early seventies, like Alan and uh, Alan made the first one. It was 15% let off. Good now, God. I mean, it actually, it, it actually felt like you're drawing more. <laughs> I mean, yeah. 15% is almost unnoticeable and it was a big, huge blocky thing. And then Jennings, you know, they came out with bows and, and Alan took that first compound to Fred bear. Um, and Fred Bear was a purist, so uh, you know he was totally against compounds. He felt like he felt the compounds like I feel about crossbows. You know they shouldn't be used in archery season. Um, but anyway, he turned it down. And then several years later, after compounds totally dominated the market, obviously Bear came out with compounds as well. Right. So I don't want to, I guess, end it on a on a gloomy note or whatever. But where do you see it going from here? Like, obviously, you know, yeah, yeah. Like, like with, with all these new, uh, gadgets, like now they got like air guns or something where, where, oh yeah, you can use air guns. So like, it almost seems like a, like a destructive path, but where, where do you kind of see it heading from here? Well, I I don't think those 
guns that shoot those bolts out of air guns. I, they're not legal in many states, are they? They are in Texas. I've seen people shoot are. them in Texas. Well, everything's legal. I think they're legal in, in, in more states than, than, really? than we think, though. I'm pretty sure because I mean, at least that's what the meat eater podcasts say, because I know they, they have a few advertisements rolling like, like in their mid roll on their podcast. And apparently they're, they're getting pretty popular from well what the ads are saying. Uh, I know once you legalize something, it's pretty hard to take it away. You know, right. the government, you know, once you give people some sort of a program, they, they never want to. They never want to leave it. You don't say. They never want to leave it. <laughs> <They're voters. laughs> so, um, I don't know. Unfortunately, I'm at the age where I'll be dead before I have to worry too much about it. So, so uh, well, I, I won't be able to bow hunt anymore. I work out every day, so I stay in shape for bow hunting, and I'm 72, and I can still climb with most anybody. But I I don't know where the technology is going. I it seems like compounds are. God, it's just hard to imagine them getting any faster. Right, so uh, awesome. Boy, every year they come up with something that tricks it out a little bit more. Oh, know? I know. I know. Uh, trying to grab that next dollar from everybody who, who buys a bow every <laughs> single year, you know. Uh, but yeah, makes you buy you buy one bow one year, and then come January of the next year, it's worth half as much. <laughs> because oh, yeah. <laughs> <of the bow. laughs> That's what we wait for, at least, you know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but so – we're having like a little series, I guess, within this successful se- season series. And it's just one question, but basically what's your close, but no cigar moment. And that could be, uh, from this last season or seasons past, but basically what's that one moment that, that, or that one encounter you had with, it could be a giant buck. It could be a spike that yep. you just almost have nightmares about like where you almost had it sealed the deal. But you know, close but no cigar, basically. Oh, I know that one right off the top of my head. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what happened there? 1975. I was hunting in a uh, was hunting between two hills. The hills had been clear cut, so there was all probably seven year old saplings, and it was dense. You know, deer were bedding in it, and there was a draw between these two hills, and the draw was just kind of weed weeds. And I was hunting in an oak right kind of at the end of the draw where it goes out into a big open CRP field. And I'd had 10, I don't know, 10 or 11 does and fawns. And I think one four point come out of the sapling down into the draw and kind of transition right underneath the tree I was in within like 10 yards. And um, about an hour before dark, and it was a bright sunny day. It was just a beautiful day. About 140 incher, which... For Michigan back then, yeah. it was rare to see a two and a half back then because we had a million dollars. <laughs> killed everything. Nobody passed on a three inch spike horn back then. So two and a halfs were rare. And this 140 inch was probably a four or five and a half year old. It was in northern Michigan where there's sandy soil. Been shot was, like six times. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know how many times it's been shot because I never killed him to find out. But he, he came out of the saplings way up at the end, and he's coming down through there, through the draw, and he's on the same route all those does that went. So I'm, you know, and this is kind of into getting into late October, you know, pre-run. And he's kind of sent checking those does, and he stops at about 35 yards. And I had a 35-yard pin on my bow. I had a bear puller to it at the time. 
And, uh, and I was, I shot leagues and I was really good at 35 yards and he's standing there broadside in the sun. And I drew my bow. I put my 35 yard pin on him. And I said, you know what? He's on this runway. Why take this 35 yard shot? He's going to come right down here following these goes and give me a 12 yard chip shot. So I let up and he stood there for about another 10 seconds. And all of a sudden, he just bolted up the side of this hill, up on this one hill, up into the edge of the saplings. And I noticed when he started going up the hill, I saw doe. I looked up there, and I saw doe just inside the saplings kind of take off. I did not know it was there. But when he stopped at 35 yards, he must have heard something up there. And then, anyway, the short story is I missed an opportunity that I know I could have capitalized on because I wanted a better shot. So I learned yeah. at that point in time, if, if I'm pretty positive, I can make the shot, take it and don't assume you're going to get a closer shot later, you know, later on that set. Yeah. That's, I, yeah, that, that, that hurts. gave me nightmares because it was the biggest <laughs> yeah. that time that I'd ever had an opportunity. Oh yeah. Dad gum. Well, that's awesome. That's, well, it's not it's awesome, but it's a good story. story. No, it, is, <laughs> it is awesome because you know, you never forget those mistakes. When you make mistakes right. like that, you never forget them. There's no way of learning, learning, no better way of learning than making a mistake and, you know, having to remember it. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I get it. Yeah, yeah I'm still, still uh, learning a lot, I guess you could say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we all are. Things change, man. Yeah. yeah if, you, if you quit learning, you become stagnant. Or if you think you yeah, know it all, right. you become stagnant. So, John, I know it's getting late where you're at. We've been on for almost two hours. I really appreciate um, you jumping on and talking about everything under the sun, deer hunting with us. Yeah. Um, for folks that want to connect with you on social media, want to check out your courses, your books, all your programs, all the good stuff that you got going on, where's the best place to do that? Okay. Well, my workshops, uh, the first two workshops are full. I still have some openings in my late April workshop, and those are on my website at D-E-E-R dash john.net that's my website um as far as my youtube show that's eberhart outdoors and my books are on my website as well books and instructional dvds and i don't know when this next book's coming out so hopefully hopefully this fall but as slow as i am right now and i'm working on this thing all day every day because i'm retired from my regular job I, I, we want it to be this fall, but it may not be till spring. Yeah, that's awesome. I, I got to yeah. say before you go, I really like the YouTube channel. Jake, John has anything from working out to the van that he kills all these big bucks in. I mean, it's, oh, it got, nice. it's got everything on there. <laughs> I try to put up uh, just, you know, a lot of good, solid general information. Yeah. That's my goal. To help hunters kill deer. I, I love it when I get emails and pictures and I post them on Facebook of other hunters, you know, they send me their pictures and I always ask them to write a short story. You know, I always tell everybody, anytime you kill a deer, you should write a short story about it, you know, about the kill and what went on, you know, what type of terrain and what time of day, what, you know, where were you hunting? And uh, it's just something to always remember your hunt by. And you never know, there may come a day when, you know, you're writing articles or whatever and you got that right there you know, as, as your background for that particular deer. You know, I, I didn't go to college. I sucked at English and now I'm a writer. Well, John, we really appreciate it. Thank oh, you so much. Oh, it's been a blast. It's really been a blast. Awesome. 
All right, so we're post episode here. Pretty awesome conversation with John. He, that dude's like a uh, encyclopedia of deer hunting. <laughs> no, like so. Right after it, like we got out of that broadcast because you know uh, John was still in there and stuff. So we immediately called each other and we're like, "Dude, this was such a great episode!" Like, and the way we explained it was it was almost like a different tier of like conversation. You know what I mean? And yep. granted you can, you can listen to multiple conversations and multiple podcasts that, that, uh, John's a part of, because I mean, heck there's, there's a multitude a of, of them. them out there. Yeah. But it's just like him answering your questions directly. And it's just like, because I mean, no disrespect by this, but like I was a little skeptical of, the scent control, like, you know, him, him wearing, you know, the, and I know he said it wasn't a hundred percent scent free, which I, I agree with, but just the way he explains it, like the way he answers your question, he's so, he's so well-versed and like knows his stuff. It's just like, you know, maybe, maybe there is something to this. You know what I mean? Who knows on the, I, I, when he started quoting like Rutgers and a bunch of, uh, like research that they had done about like, uh, activated right. carbon technology. Like I've heard that, um, I've heard that verbiage a lot regurgitated, but it's like mm-hmm. when you get someone that is an expert on something like that and you get to sit down with them one-on-one and be like, you not only do you get to ask them a question, you get to follow up question. Right. And you get to tell them like, this is how I grew up hunting. This is my success based on playing the wind. And like, the thing is, is like, he has 54 years of experience to draw from and 35 of that is playing the wind, how we hunt. So he has See, like this yin and the yang right. of the two differences. Am I going to be one of those people that's completely convinced uh, just after hearing it? No, but I, it's, no. it's something I would take to my crappy spots and try. Yeah, I would, no, I would definitely try it. I mean, there's, I mean, I, I truly think there's like something to it now. And like what I was telling you on the phone earlier, just like they're like, it was almost like whenever Joe Rogan uh, interviewed Elon Musk, you know what I mean? Like, like there's a difference in knowledge right there. Like as a hunter, we all like to think we know stuff, but that man, that man knows his stuff. Like whether you're, whether you're a fan of him or not, I don't know why you wouldn't be a fan of him because he's a super nice guy, but it's just, it's almost like mind mind boggling. It is. It's weird to, a lot of times I think I feel like you, you've, been around people that have hunted for a long period of time, but they don't know how to verbalize it in a way that is meaningful to you and where you can like take action off of it. John mm-hmm. is like a master at taking <laughs> what you ask and giving you like a, a immediate action that you can take based on what he asked you asked. Right. Him. Like he's just, he's a beast at it. It was, it was, I don't want to like say it any disrespect to the other guests, but that might've been the best one so far like hundred percent. I learned, I learned the most. <laughs> One of the things I was telling Jake once we right, right when we got off was I'm going to take some of the things he said and immediately change yeah. some of the, the things that I was hunting, especially the analogies that he had about, about bedrooms, about driveways, about back doors, front doors. Like that just makes sense in my terms. This is one, like, even though we heard it firsthand, like it's one that I'll probably go re-listen to possibly two other times and just to try to really soak this all up because there was so oh, much like, and in a way I kind of felt bad because like you said, it's very end, like we were all over the place. Like, I feel like we talked about deer hunting all, all types, all under the sun, you know? Yep. And it's just like, that's a lot to soak in. So, I mean, I'm definitely going to listen to this like at least one or two more times. Maybe the, maybe the folks that are enjoying this episode will listen to it 
Alan. multiple times. I hope so. Alan, this one's for <laughs> you, buddy. Um, got a lot of your a lot of your questions in there. Thank you for sending those over. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of the folks that listen are really going to enjoy this episode with John. What think how you will about scent control. I'm not saying that I'm buying a scent lock suit tonight, but right. I'm saying uh, I am going to do more research and John is an awesome guest. Absolutely. Thank you guys so much for checking out the Hunter's Advantage podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, make sure to leave us a rating and review on Apple podcast, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you listen to the podcast. Thank you guys so much. And we'll see you in the next episode.